Hello, and welcome to The Taproot. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. This week, we are going to be talking about the pressure to move to different cities or countries during the course of scientific training, and how our guest worked around it to stay in his hometown for personal reasons. Our guest this week is Guillaume Lobet and his wonderful Belgian accent. We talk about why the pressure exists and how he has used open science to circumvent what is perceived as a mandatory requirement. So with that, let's get to the conversation. Guillaume Lobet, welcome to Taproot Season 2. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Just to give you guys a little background on our guest today, Guillaume is currently an assistant professor at two institutions, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that, uh, Ulich, uh, with a, a German name that I can't pronounce, and University of Louvain in Belgium. And so he's, he's transnational. But he started at Louvain, uh, where he got his PhD before moving to Liege, in, also in Belgium, as a postdoctoral fellow, and then moving to Ulich as a postdoctoral fellow, and now and to his faculty position. Guillaume should be uh, very familiar to uh, Taproot listeners. He was mentioned very favorably in our episode with Jose Deneni as part of the collaboration on their root phenotyping system. And so he's going to tell us about a different paper. And with that, why don't we just go right ahead and Guillaume, can you tell us a little bit about the paper that we're going to be talking about today, which is from Plant Physiology in 2015, and the title is Root System Markup Language Toward a Unified Root Architecture Description Language. So that's very shortly that paper is a more method paper which describe a computer format to store information about root systems. So a root system architecture can be hard to describe and was described in a lot of different ways. And so with a consortium of people, we decided that it would be useful to have one unified uh, way to describe them and to store uh, that type of information. And that's what we describe in the paper, the format in itself, and also a couple of tools that we developed uh, around that format. One question I had is, is why are, is root structure so hard to describe <laughs> in general that you needed to do this? Uh, that's, that's a very good question. So if you look at the root system, it can be described on many, many levels. So one easy way would be just to say, okay, I have that many roots or I have uh, all the roots have that total uh, length. The, the whole sum of the order roots is, is one specific length. But then if you do that, you're missing a whole dimension, which is that all the roots are not the same. If you look at root system, it's much more than just a set of identical roots. So you have different types of roots. So you might have the tap roots uh, on which you have lateral roots that we themselves have lateral roots and so on. So you can have different layers. You have a specific topology. So the arrangements of these roots uh, between each other uh, might be also important for some processes. Uh, and you are, if you're just describing some global metric, such as, as I said, the total length, you're missing out on all these more precise layer of roots uh, system uh, description of the, the description of the architecture in itself. 
And that's why we wanted to have this, uh, this format that would store the full information about the root architecture. And then after that, if you want to have only the total root length, you can get it. But if you want also to dive more uh, deeper into the architecture and how this architecture is uh, arranged for that specific uh, root system, you could do so as well. So here's where we admit that we just brought you on to have so the guest mention the word taproot as well as us. But this is actually, I think, very similar to the Carolyn Lawrence episode in the season one in terms of this is a paper where a group of people decided that they needed something as a community and right. came together to build it. How did, how did that, tell us a little bit about how that happened. It happened uh, because we were, so it started with image analysis tools. So we were developing uh, in our lab a tool to analyze uh, root system images. And we were in contact with a couple of other groups that were doing the same, notably the people in, uh, in the CPIP in Nottingham. Uh, so uh, Mike Pounds uh, and Tony Pridmore. And the, the discussion started really with them, where we both recognized that we had different tools that were doing different stuff. And none of the tools was perfect. And so we could not have one, one unique tool for every question. But we could agree on a way to share the information between these tools. And they were starting to have more and more image analysis tools for root system. So we reached out to other people who were developing also other tools. And at some point we gathered uh, all together just to discuss how could we do that, discuss the technicalities about exactly how we should define that language. And we did so in, I think we, uh, we sat down for two days all together, uh, people from so Belgium, from the UK, from Austria, France, and Germany. And we came up in two days with that, that language. So to, to share, it's basically just to share information. Yeah, I think in your blog post, you use uh, some kind of a Lord of the Rings metaphor. Right. Uh, so I think it was one, one language to, to rule them all, yeah. Yeah, and so and now it's it's used in image analysis tools, but also modeling tools and data analysis tools. So you can exchange this information that is basically the same. You're working with the same object, and then you can send it back and forth, forth between models, uh, image analysis, and so on. So it has it's been now two years that the paper's been out, which probably means the language has been set for three years, right. has this language succeeded in sort of unifying the community around it, do you think? Well, it, it's, I would say it's starting to. I think more and more people know about it, especially on the developer side. And because, well, we started with quite a few, well, quite a lot of people. And so we had a kind of critical mass at the beginning. And that was key for the dissemination of the language. And now most of the time when there is a new tool that deal with that type of uh, data, so root uh, architecture data, it will be compatible with the RSML, which for us is really nice to, to see. So I would say it's going well so far. Is this, this language that you guys have created, like how long is that going to last? Uh, well, we hope it's going to last. So, so some of the people that were involved in the design were actually also involved in the design of previous language to store 
uh, plant data. So they had quite a f quite some experience in that regard, and so they could guide us to help make it as we hope it's as universal as possible. Uh, yeah. We rely on uh, known ontologies. It's a known, so it's a XML based. So it's XML is a language that is used fairly widely. What we also did was to make everything open source. So the the whole documentation, the whole language is open source, and so and the tools we also develop are also open source. We there was new developments from other people with these tools. So I, I cannot answer the question for sure. I don't know if it will still be around. I sure hope so. Right. But that's your intention as a for it to be something sort of That's the intention, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We spent quite some time trying to to make it as flexible as possible. Yeah. So um, as Ivan said in your CV, you did your PhD and in the same institution at which you are now a faculty member. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a pretty uh, rare situation. Something I think actually a lot of people would love to make happen. I certainly would have loved to, to go back to my PhD institution as a faculty member, but it's rare. And I wonder how you made that happen um, and maybe what some of the pros and cons were about sort of staying in the same place instead of moving around and developing networks that way. A follow-on question would be, was it always your plan to get back to Louvain? I've always liked moving around. So I did an Erasmus exchange and I moved a bit during my studies. And after my PhD in, in Louvain, that was also the plan. So I was planning to go on a postdoc abroad and I started uh, raising some uh, some money for that. But then we were starting a family with my wife. We had one kid already, which was not an issue for us. But then this, when my second daughter was born, she was born uh, deaf. And so that came with a lot of restrictions or I would say new challenges uh, family-wise for us. The thing is, in Belgium, we have a very good uh, social security system, which makes everything for free when it comes to this type of uh, medical care. And so when Zoe, my second daughter, was born, it was at that point not possible for us to move anymore because that would put too much constraints on the kids and would potentially jeopardize the education of, of uh, both of them. And so at that time, we, the idea was just, okay, I will try to stay in science as long as I can. I will do as best as I can. And I will try to kind of go around this lack of mobility issue that I had. So the lack of mobility for me was a, was a choice. I think that's a really interesting thing to, to think about. I mean, you have a very hard a strong reason to want to stay where you are. But I think many, many young scientists have strong reasons to want to stay that may not be as concrete as yours, and like, but are, are still very relevant to their lives and their happiness and their um, support systems. Sure, I, I, I fully agree. So on the one hand, I fully agree that having some international experience uh, moving labs and so on is great and i'm sure that you actually learn learn a lot 
but sometimes it's just not possible. I mean, life is funny in some cases and makes you just not mobile. And that doesn't make you a bad scientist. And I think that that's the bottom line for me. Okay, so you, you have this beautiful daughter, Zoe, who has a, a challenging problem. She's deaf. And so and you want to stay in Belgium where you know she's going to get the best care and education. Right. So you, you, you've already got your PhD at this point? I, I'm about to get it. So she was born a month before I get my PhD. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that must have been... That was fun times. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, I can only like, I'm actually like, while you're telling this story, I actually have tears in my eyes just thinking about all of these huge decisions, like getting a PhD and deciding what to do next is so hard. Having a child with a disability is so hard. And then (laughs) to do them both at the same time just sounds outstandingly challenging. So you decide you and your wife were like, okay, this is the most important thing to us. We're going to stay here. And then what, so what do you do then? I consider myself very lucky because I had good opportunities for me at the right time. So when I finished my PhD, there was uh, an opening for a position in, in Liège. And that position was within inter-university uh, projects. And so I started there and I, so I worked on that project for for a year and then I moved to another source of uh, financing which I was also lucky to have and so for me just everything just came at the right moment. So when you you moved to Liège is that how far is that from Louvain and so were you moving your whole family or was that something you could do without moving your family? Okay so just to give some scales if you are so once you're in Belgium if you drive two hours in any direction, you're out of the country. So that makes things much easier. So Louvain-la-Neuve to Liège, that's two opposite cities in Wallonia, which is the southern part of Belgium, that's 40 minutes. So that's something that is easily feasible without moving the family. Got it. Right? And that's actually also the case when I went to Jülich, so in, uh, in Germany. So that's a different country, but that's an hour and a half from home. And that's how I got my international uh, mobility check. That yeah, was your credentials. <laughs> exactly. So that's, yeah. that's having an international experience. That's something that is, I would not say mandatory, but very, very strongly advised if you want to have a faculty position. So that's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about that because for American scientists, that's not the case. Like nobody is required to go overseas. Right. Nobody's even required to leave the West Coast if you don't want to. (laughs) Um, You definitely are expected to change institutions, but nobody... So what's the value of international experience? I can see it, but like what's the articulated value of international experience? So... One thing is that it's just having a work experience and a research experience in a completely different setup. And I think when you go... So from Belgium, you could uh, kind of rate the different countries where you could do your PhD. You can do a postdoc. You can have an international experience. The US would be at the top. And then closely behind, you would have the UK. And then Germany. And then probably... uh, 
the rest. Research experience in a very different setup, very different way of thinking uh, that would enrich you. And I'm sure it does. But making it mandatory, that's where I have an issue with. Yeah, so let's talk more about that. You're going to stay in Belgium. You know you're missing this aspect to your CV, which one big reason for it is this ability to build networks, right? So how do you how do you do that without moving? What was your sort of solution to all that? So th that was actually exactly what I wanted to do uh, when I decided not to move. I, I decided, okay, I will build network without moving, hoping that would compensate to some extent. And I would say I use different tools to do that. Twitter being one of them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the easiest way to get in touch with people from uh, everywhere. And, it, and for me, it, it did work. So um, I think I had two to three papers that came straight out of Twitter, almost uh, only out of that. Wow. Going to conferences, although I didn't do a long stay abroad, I tried to have short stays a couple of times per year. So going to conferences. And when I go to conferences, uh, for instance, in the U.S., I would most of the time try to visit collaborators. So if it's in the same on the same coast, I would go visit uh, Jose Dineni, for instance. I did that uh, last year, so I, I visited uh, Jose's lab for a couple of days, and then I went to a conference uh, close by. So yeah, so trying to I, I really try to build networks online, and then make them real by meeting people either in conferences or by visiting them. Another thing I've seen you do too is like share your data, your images, your presentations online in a way that I think is kind of novel. And that's a way for people to see what you're doing without having seen you give a, you know, like a local area talk. Right. So I'm that that's another part of what I'm trying to to do is I'm trying to valorize everything that I do. Uh, so for me, science is not only the final paper, is the whole process behind that, right? And if you can share that process, that process being making figures or making presentations or whatever you make, I think you can valorize it in some form. And that's why I share almost everything that I do, I try to just put it online somehow to get credit for it. Also because I know that um, if it's any good, people might reuse it. And that's also good for me. I try also people to encourage to do the same uh, so I can reuse what they're doing. Right. So one of these things is, is this fig share? Is that the right? So we, with... Uh, a couple of other people, mainly from Twitter, so Erin Spark from Delaware, uh, Larry York from uh, the Nobel Foundation, and Frédéric Boucher, who was a colleague of mine also in Liège. We figured that we spent quite a lot of time making figures, and it would be nice if we could just share them so people could reuse them, and also if we could use figures from other people. And we have uh, collections for shoots, illustration, roots, illustration, flowers. Uh, we have pictures of plants, any, any type. And we just ask people to put an open license on them so it can be reused. And if possible, we ask also to put the 
original uh, file. So not just the image, but the file that what that was used to create that image. So it can be. And we got a few, quite a few people pitching in and uh, adding their own figures. So it was, it's still a nice resource, I think. So these are all really great ways to do collaboration internationally. But it also is enabled partially because you are a computational plant biologist. And I wonder if you think back, you, you, you talked about how you had a lot of lucky opportunities. How many of those would have been possible, do you think, if you were not, you know, if you were a microscopist, if you were a uh, somebody who's who has a significant wet lab component into their skill set and what they do? Yeah, that's that's a a tough question, but very to the point. I think so. What one of the key element for me is, I basically just need my computer to do my research, and so it's easy to work from anywhere in the in the world and to co- easy. I don't think it would have been that easy if I had to to have some wet wet lab experiments. That said, one of my feelings is if you have less resources, that does not mean you can do uh, a lesser science. In some cases, it makes you think harder about how to do things and you have to make it uh, in a more clever way. But it's not because you have less means and you have access to only the facilities uh, where you are, that doesn't mean that you cannot do good science. It's an important question. And so maybe, and I think the fact, as you mentioned earlier, that you actually were willing to walk away from science. Yeah. It suggests that we need to figure out why it's so important or if it's so important for people to move and what mechanisms would be there for people who can't move to keep them in science so we don't lose them. Well, maybe one, one more thing is, so moving sometimes is a requirement from your, on your CV. You need to have a kind of international experience. If you are super mobile and you can go anywhere you want, then there is a good chance that you will find funding for your science because you just go where the funding is. Before getting this, uh, the position I have now, which I'm very, very fortunate to have and very happy to have, but I was seriously considering my options out of academia. Yeah, I mean, there's not very many of us who could just pick up and go anywhere, anytime, right? We're all bound in some way or another. Sure. Moving around is, is strongly encouraged in, in science and in academia. And you're right. One of them is to get this international experience, although I think Americans don't really feel that in the same way. Mm. So how do you like feel like you're bringing in novelty and not just sort of presenting the same point of view and the same ideas as your thesis advisor and, and the, those that trained you? So I'm indeed in the same institution partly than uh, where I did my PhD. And I'm actually in the same lab. I'm currently sitting in the same office where I wrote my thesis. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of inbreeding, uh, I might not be the best example. That's And, and I, I fully agree that that could be an issue. If you're just staying in the same, the same people in the same institution, that could be an issue. For me, there are different ways. So you, I'm supportive of mobility 
as long as it's not mandatory. As an institution, you can put a lot of tools to help people move around during their PhD, during their postdocs. I think also you can, somehow it's a set of minds. So if you want to be, to see what's going on in other places, nowadays with the internet, you can do so. So I just like to see what's going on in other places. I like new ideas, new tools, and I can get everything, all of that online. So it's also, I think, a frame of thinking. It's really hard for me because on the one hand, I see Guillaume's situation and all the great work that he's done. And, you know, I would, it's, it would be appalling to me that he would not be in science, right? Right. Thank you. The idea that Guillaume would not be here because he couldn't find a way to do his great science in Belgium, it's, it's, that's really bad. That would be a loss. That would be a loss. On the other hand, one of the things I love about the Danforth Center, where I work, is the flags we have from all of our people who are working at the center right now. And we have this great, they, are, they, get, they get hung um, in a very prominent place, and there's like 30 different flags. And it's incredibly important to have that perspective of people from around the world in our science. So there's these two really conflicting things that are both really good, which to me means we have to balance them and find ways to, to both allow people to stay, but really resist the temptation for that to be the default. I, I do think that institutions will find that that's a, that's a loss. Yeah, and I fully agree with that. So institutions should encourage mobility as much as they can without making it mandatory. Yeah. I mean, I think one interesting anecdote I have, the National Science Foundation Plant Genome Program Fellows, a postdoctoral fellowship program. And initially, when they launched it, they required that you change institutions. Okay. That was the first year. And I believe it was the second year they realized that there was a bunch of people who said, you know, I would have applied for this, but I couldn't leave state U town um, because my family's here. And so even though I did a postdoc with somebody else, I wasn't eligible. So then they, they said, and I can't remember whether they said you had to change departments at least, but certainly advisors like you are absolutely could not work with your PhD advisor for a postdoctoral fellowship. Sure. I think the key is getting you out of your intellectual home is something that you have to do. And you certainly did that in your in your career. You actually went out and explored the world. Sure. And yeah, in in some cases if you just go to the lab next door, it can be very very different than the lab you were before. Yeah. And and for me that was the case. So the lab I, in Liège is is nothing like the one in Louvain-la-Neuve. But then that's if you are not. So I think for a committee that's hard to evaluate. Yeah, it's easier to say okay, this is not the same country. That's an objective <laughs> way to say. Well, that's really interesting. Okay, well, Guillaume, thank you so much for this r really interesting conversation about how you have developed a way to get around your 
Cecil academic situation. How can people get a hold of you if they want to follow up or follow you? So people can find me on Twitter. I'm at Guillaume Lobe. So that's G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E-L-O-B-E-T. And that's the easiest way. So from there, you can find uh, my personal website. And then from there, you can find the different repositories and other websites that I play with. And it's been a lot of fun for me to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Um, Best uh, to you and your family and to little Zoe, too. Thanks. Oh, everything is going so well. So I'm glad to hear that. So if you... uh, listeners, uh, if you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at on Twitter as well at at ehaswell. And you can reach me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can reach the podcast at Taproot Podcast. And we also have an email, which is taproot at plante.org. And with that, thank you all for listening. And thank you again, Guillaume. Thank you. Root is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week.